Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. On today's episode, we have uh, Dr. Delton Chen, who is um, an engineer um, from Australia who has been working on a biophysical model for um, the global economy and um, wrote a really interesting um, essay called The Silver Gun Hypothesis, which outlines how a global reward currency for carbon mitigation or drawdown could be um, a powerful and viable alternative to carbon taxes and other proposed mechanisms for balancing our global carbon budget. This conversation was really interesting. Again, as always, we sort of dive off of the deep end um, and get straight into the nitty gritty of his work in the world and um, some of the implications and underpinnings of the, the hypothesis that he's um, looking to test around creating a new uh, economic model based on thermodynamics that allows us to understand how to balance the global carbon emissions of our economy with uh, a complementary economy based on um, inspiration instead of respiration, if that makes sense. So in-breath and out-breath. So we have the out-breath of the global industrial economy and we have the in-breath of the global regenerative economy based on this reward currency that he's proposing. So it's a very interesting idea. Um, I think it is deeply aligned with uh, the thinking and work that we've been uh, pioneering at Regen Network. And so there's a bit of uh, sort of kindred spirits um, between Delton and I having this conversation. Um, there's so many questions and, and such an exciting path forward in testing some of the assumptions and getting a, a deeper understanding of the hypothesis that underpins his thinking. I'm really looking forward to um, continuing the conversation with Delton into the future. Um, and we'll do our best to have some um, detailed show notes in this show uh, so that folks can link to some of his work. Uh, have fun. Delton, thanks for hopping on the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Um, I'll, I'll set a few of the sort of, um, you know, just rules, I guess. Rules isn't the right word, but just like the, the way that I've been working to run things. So mm -hmm. um, the, the idea of this podcast is to just take listeners on a deep dive, like a torrent of information. So... I'm not trying to dumb things down or distill it into bullet points at all. I'm, we are, you and I get to have our curiosity um, lead us down whatever rabbit holes, however deep we want to get. Um, and um, I, that's sort of in service to how I like my information, which is dense and um, bewildering. <laughs> well, that that's, that's really suits me perfectly because. Um, there is a real problem in public uh, conversations and conferences where they give you 10 minutes and people have this idea of a three minute elevator pitch. Yeah. Soundbite science. So it doesn't really work with these topics. That's right. You need this dense, deeper 
dive. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah. This is like the anti TED talk. The anti TED talk. <laughs> so this is. Let's think of this as as your opportunity um, for folks, for listeners who aren't familiar with Delton's work. Um, Delton is the author of uh, the Silver Gun Hypothesis and the Living System Economy Framework, and um, I'm just overjoyed to get to sort of dive into a conversation. Um, the work underpinning those two frameworks is really exciting. And so I'm gonna let you um, give a quick introduction, Dalton, to sort of, um, I think maybe the, the why and the what of, you know, I, I sort of think of those two frameworks as part of a, a greater piece of work that's, that's singular, I, I think. I'm not sure what you would call it. Maybe the living systems economy. Yeah, sure. Uh, why, why have the living systems economy and what is the living systems economy? Yeah. That is a good start because the living systems economy was developed to communicate those two ideas uh, concisely. And why it's important is that it provides a high-level model to explain how human civilization can find the agency to uh, abate and sequester sufficient carbon to provide a safe climate. Mm. So effectively, the reason why we have the living system economy model is to propose a, uh, a deeper, more holistic biophysical model and theory for how humanity can uh, move towards the ambition of the Paris Climate Agreement, which effectively is an agreement for climate safety. Mm -hmm. the, the, the details of the Paris Agreement, Article 2, the one and a half to two degree ambition, technically speaking, that isn't really a safe climate, but we would have to get to there before we could even consider climate restoration to, to return to a Holocene-like climate. So that's the why. The why is about finding agency to do that. And when I say finding agency, uh, I literally mean um, both defining what that agency is, theoretically, and how to implement it. Um, so what it is, is a high-level biophysical model to explain uh, what I, I've stated. And it comes in two forms, this model. So the, the high-level model is called the living systems economy model. And uh, it, it um, presents these ideas in a digestible fashion, but it doesn't get into the details too much. Mm -hmm. There is another model, which is called the silver gun hypothesis, which is a bottom-up uh, model for explaining the details of why um, the living system, systems economy works a multi-agent theory and some thermodynamic principles. And, and that second model, the lip, called the silver gun hypothesis, that, that's probably too detailed for this interview, although we could talk about it, but my intention is to focus on the living systems economy because it really is um, the best way to frame this biophysical solution to climate change and sustainability and unsustainable economic growth. Yeah. Okay. So, 
so essentially, I, I what I what I'm getting, I mean, what I'm getting from what you're speaking about, because I'm going to sort of keep my for the, for a little while, I'm going to keep my question to what I'm hearing, so that I can sort of like be serving to parse um, for the listeners. So, and then we'll dive into some of my questions from reading your works. Um, so what I'm getting from that is that th there's there's a need or an imperative for a, a new approach to economics that takes into consideration um, biophysical reality. The, the basic science of thermodynamics, of the carbon cycle and, and other things. And that's what fundamentally the living system economy framework is doing, is showing a pathway towards accounting for the realities of planet Earth in an economic system. That, that's right. And um, of course, I'm not the first person to propose that biophysics can be used to frame uh, the economy or parts of the economy. Um, however, if you look at the mainstream narrative on climate change and policy, it, it is really focused around uh, carbon taxes of some kind and other conventional policies. And the, the neoclassical theory that justifies carbon taxes, uh, it is really the only um, deep theoretical framework that economists have to justify that approach. And it, it's traced back to Arthur Pigou's work, uh, in, which was written in 1920, 100 years ago, uh, and to um, Albert Marshall's work before that. So Marshall, um, he put forward the notion of marginal utility, and then Arthur Pigou introduced the concept of a market failure and how to um, resolve the market failure with taxes and subsidies. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying, I guess, is that those approaches, the classical approaches, they are, I believe, very rational and they should be used. However, when it comes to carbon, we can't rely on those classical theories alone because carbon uh, is a very special element in the periodic table that um, differentiates itself from all the other elements and pollutants in the environment. Because as we all know, carbon is the building block of life. So carbon stores a lot of energy, it provides structure, and it's, it stores information, for example, in DNA. Mm -hmm. And given that carbon is so fundamental to life and the emergence of life, uh, we can't really separate carbon from energy like you can other pollutants. Therefore, uh, what I'm claiming is that the market failure in greenhouse gases is not a classical market failure, but indeed is a thermodynamic market failure. And as a thermodynamic market failure, we can't really conceptualize the problem adequately with these neoclassical ideas alone, but we have to bring in a more generalized model. And the only other real approach we can use that's, let's call it scientific, um, would be a framing based on the natural sciences and uh, this would bring in the, the school of economics known as biophysical economics. 
And biophysical economics is simply another word or another phrase for the term thermodynamic economics. But at some point in time, <clears throat> the people in that field changed the name to biophysical economics. But really, it's trying to adhere to the laws of thermodynamics and the principles and ideas in that, in that field of physics. And um, so that's a little bit of a background mm -hmm. uh, on why the approach could make sense. But I'll just interject before I hand it back to you, uh, Gregory, uh, to point out that uh, the living systems economy is founded on a hypothesis. So it's not proven yet. There, there is some verification of the theory and validation of the theory in a working paper, but we have to be careful not to assume it's correct at this point, but it, it does appear to be correct, or I think it has a high probability of being correct based on what I understand at this point in time. Right. That, thank you for that clarification. And I think that that, um, that sort of transparency and caution um, is, I, I applaud that. I think that's an, it's important to stay sort of unattached to one's um, hypothesis because that's good science. And uh, one question I, I have though, just to sort of like push on that a little bit is <clears throat> what is at risk if, if we were to believe and implement your hypothesis, um, what do you think the negative um, consequences of the hypothesis being proven wrong could be if people were to test it by enacting it? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I suppose one risk would be that it might introduce uh, more inefficiencies into the world economy. Because in the theory that is, uh, is the silver gun hypothesis or is the, the economic theory here, um, <clears throat> one of the interpretations is that we need uh, a certain kind of economic inefficiency to manage the risks of climate change. And so uh, what's interesting about this model is that we propose two types of efficiency and two types of inefficiency. So uh, let's consider efficiencies first. Um, every economist in the world loves the notion of economic efficiency or market efficiency. But what, what we're saying is that you can have good efficiencies and bad efficiencies. And you can also have good inefficiencies and bad inefficiencies. So the idea is to offer a global carbon reward to scale up climate mitigation, and that would introduce good efficiencies, or sorry, good inefficiencies. And if the theory were to be proven wrong or if it wasn't really needed, then we may introduce what we call good inefficiencies um, that simply might not be needed because um, carbon taxes and regular kinds of green investments might be sufficient to manage the climate crisis. But in actual fact, I would say uh, if the theory is wrong, if the hypothesis is wrong, it would mean that we can rely on our governments to solve this crisis. But if the theory is correct, then uh, we shouldn't expect our governments to be able to solve this crisis for us. 
and that we would need to go to uh, the new policy, the Global Carbon Award, which requires central banks to participate with a, uh, a new currency system uh, and an ex uh, what's called a carbon exchange standard to manage the world economy. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, there's a bunch of things coming into my mind. First, though, um, just a, a um, sound quality note. Whatever, sometimes I'm hearing a little brushing sound. Um, That's my left hand brushing across the table. I, so I'm picking... <laughs> I'll have to stop doing that, sorry. I'm picking that up, no worries. Um, can you hear me though? Do you want I, me to... I can hear you, I can hear you well, yeah. So, um, okay, so there's a bundle, there's a bundle there that I'd like to unpack, which is, you know, so I was sort of asking a question kind of, you know, a, a modified precautionary principle question, which is sort of what's at mm -hmm. stake? Um, because I think also I could ask, what's at stake if we don't put enough time and effort into testing the hypothesis? Um, I have personally have the assumption that in order to test an economic hypothesis as um, complex as the silver gun hypothesis, <clears throat> there actually needs to be sort of like real world experimentation. I mean, I think we can do a fair amount of computer simulation, but at the end of the day, you know, you sort of need the non-rational human element to see how it actually plays out in a community. Um, and mm. I'm curious, is, does that resonate with you? Is that what a test needs is needed i mean there's sort of levels of testing one might be a simulation and the next might be some sort of like limited experimentation in grassroots communities around the world you know what's needed to actually thoroughly test the hypothesis right right um the hypothesis that needs to be tested is called the silver gun hypothesis and it's a multi-agent theory so one way to test it would be in a computer simulation a multi-agent model that is designed and uh, structured to replicate or simulate the laws of thermodynamics. Um, it could also possibly, and I'm speculating, but possibly be tested using uh, living cells um, and or it can be tested with social experiments by pilot studies of the mm -hmm. policy. And um, I, I'd like to point out too that Social scientists have actually tested a certain aspect of this theory already, um, which, which they call carrot and stick uh, incentives. So in the literature, in, in the peer-reviewed literature, there's at least three studies where scientists have taken groups of people and they've given them um, sticks, which are penalty-based incentives, and they've given them carrots, which are rewards of some certain kind, and then they've given them combinations of the two. And what they've found consistently is that human cooperation maximizes with carrot and stick incentives together. And so that's at a very uh, foundational level, that's evidence that uh, this reward-based approach combined with taxes and other penalties uh, could be used to maximize cooperation. But what's special about the silver gun hypothesis is that we're looking for much higher fidelity in um, the way agents interact with each other because 
we're specifically wanting to test the idea that um, agents like cells or human or human beings um, will form colonies. So human beings form economies and living cells form multicellular organisms. Uh, this hypothesis needs to be tested on, on the basis of the first and second laws of thermodynamics and with the notion of energy efficiency and entropic safety as two performance um, metrics that multi-agent systems follow. And <clears throat> for the purposes of, of this interview, I wasn't going to go into those details. So uh, they're probably a bit too technical for this um, conversation. But if I just leave it at that, uh, noting that um, all systems, all systems that are alive, will have a certain amount of um, energy efficiency and they will also be able to protect themselves entropically from decay. And the hypothesis um, pinpoints two metrics to describe those particular skills or fitnesses of living systems. And the model itself or the theory is probabilistic. And so it, it doesn't uh, introduce any new concepts. What's interesting about it is that the hypothesis only really depends on three concepts. One is the first law of thermodynamics for conservation of energy. The second is increasing total entropy under the second law. And the third concept is that of open systems, which the model doesn't explain how they come into being, but the open system would be the living system because all living systems, be they cells, human beings, or economies, uh, they're all open systems that energy flows through and, and matter goes in and out. So, so <clears throat> it strikes me that that's part of what differentiates your work from, for instance, Herman Daly's work on steady state economies, where um, I don't know if this is an accurate characterization, but it always strikes me that the sort of like <clears throat> steady state or homeostatic approach to shift evolving our economy is sort of trying to turn the human economy into a closed system in a way, like sort of saying that there's, um, yeah, is, is that... First off, is that an accurate characterization? Would you also make that um, discernment? Um, and, and if not, what, what sort of differentiation would you make around how you're thinking, um, the, the implications of your thinking versus some of these other attempts at upgrading economic theory? Yeah, Greg, that's a really, uh important question and I have to address this question very carefully because uh, out there in, in the bigger world there are many people including um, many ecological economists who um, support Herman Daly's steady state theory or model and uh, the differentiation is that uh, I believe a steady state model is only really valid for certain kinds of systems where you don't really need to take account of entropy. And the reason that this is the case is probably best explained with an example. And a good example of applying 
uh, Hemandali's steady state model would be managing water. So you take, for example, a storage of water, it could be a groundwater aquifer. And the, the concept of the model is to utilize the resource at a similar rate that the resource is being replenished. So like groundwater, charge, you pump it out, and yeah. you can achieve a balance over time in theory. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in application, we can definitely do that. And it makes sense with water. There are complications, however, in real life. And one of the complications is that human beings, including farmers, they don't necessarily care that much about the future relative to the value of the water to them in the short term. So there are many examples where farmers will overutilize the water, the groundwater, even though they know it's going to run out in the near future or in the distant future. One example is Northern India, where farmers are over-extracting groundwater. And another example is the Oligala Aquifer in central United States, where the whole region is over-utilizing the, the water resource and that eventually they'll run out of groundwater. Mm -hmm. So why do they do that? Well, the, the short answer is that people uh, time discount. So we discount away the future because we, we want the, the resource today to survive today. Now, Herman Daly's steady state model um, fails only in that respect that people uh, time discount, but why do they time discount? And the answer to that question, I believe, is because of entropy, ultimately. Now, why can't we use a steady state model for climate change? Well, at the beginning of this interview, I talked about uh, the fact we have a thermodynamic market failure in carbon. And, and so the answer ultimately is that carbon, because it is strongly coupled to energy, you can't ignore the second law of thermodynamics. So if you bring the second law in, what that tells us is that steady state systems, and I'm now talking about perfect steady state systems, they don't actually exist. And, and that's a very major distinction. So let me explain it this way. If, you, if we're going to actually develop a model that is consistent with thermodynamics, you must be consistent with the second law. And Ludwig Boltzmann, who developed that law, he uh, pointed out in his notes that uh, based on the probabilities of particles, classical particles in, in the explanation of entropy, there is no, uh, there's a zero probability of a perfect steady state system emerging. So the second law precludes perfect steady state systems and they don't actually exist in nature, which is interesting. In quantum mechanics, in classical thermodynamics, in cosmology, there are no perfect steady state systems. They simply don't exist in our universe. Once you understand that, then it becomes more clear that the Hermandali's steady state model uh, has major limitations when you really have to address the thermodynamics of a system. So when we, we look at carbon in the environment, uh, we need a more generalized model that can take that into account, the impossibility of steady state. And this is where the uh, living systems economy model uh, comes in. So if you like, Gregory, I can now explain that model 
very quick. Let me ask a couple more questions um, just to build a mental model, because I think that this discernment around um, the existence or non-existence of, of sort of like the archetype of a steady state system and people's mental minds. I think this is the transition from how most of us conceptualize sustainability as a, as a paradigm versus sort of the, the regeneration or restoration or living systems economy that is, is sort of an imperative that we understand and interact with. So I, I wanna spend just a moment here and test the mental model that I'm using to see sure. if, if it matches your mental model. Sort of, you know, are the analogies that, that are coming to my mind um, rigorous enough to form a mental image of how the world really does work so that we can use that to inform our thinking? So go ahead. This is this is a really interesting and important topic. So let, let's do it. So um, the sun mm -hmm. is a giant. You could think of it as a giant energy gradient that's dispersing mm -hmm. energy from a high source to a very low source, way out in the distant universe. And mm -hmm. in the Earth we're at a particularly sweet spot in that gradient where mm -hmm. a, certain a certain amount, at least for the um, you know, near future, <laughs> near to mid future, we're constantly receiving, you know, I sort of think of it as like, there's like a flywheel and it's just spinning it. There's just somebody who's just spinning it, which is what's meant by an open system, right? There is an input mm -hmm. that's constant. It's constantly mm -hmm. happening like a river that's flowing. Mm. Now, um, life is an eddy off of that flow. It's like another mm -hmm. little spinning, you know, current that's moving the opposite direction of that giant energy gradient, which we could call entropy, right? That the sun is like mm -hmm. spending energy and it's pushing it out. And then there's this little eddy, which is Earth, the biosphere, which is pushing mm -hmm the other direction, essentially, if you were to think of it um, in, in like a pattern level soft focus. And then within Earth, there's, yeah. all, there's many other subflows and there's many other sub eddies. And there's this sort of like complex yeah. eddying flow of what appears to be the reversal of entropy or centropy, yeah. where, yeah. which is sort of like the essence of life somehow, which yeah. is we're taking advantage of these Little ed these little energy eddies, and we're building them and building them. But when we pretend that those eddies will exist forever, mm, instead mm. of being part of a larger complex system of entropic diffusion of energy, mm, we're basing mm. our mental model on something that's fundamentally untrue. Whereas mm. if we base it on an understanding that these are eddies, and that uh -huh. we need to um, create systems that, that sort of like um, increase that flow for the time that it exists, um, we're on much more solid theoretical footing. Is that mental model, what, what upgrades would you make to that? <laughs> well, you've hit the nail on the head there with the notion of eddies, which <clears throat> metaphorically represents the fact the universe is increasing in entropy, but there are these eddies or pockets 
of relatively lower entropy, including life itself on Earth. So um, if, if we look at civilization as one of those eddies, or life on Earth as one of those eddies, in our civilization, uh, one of the paradigms that we're talking about is the circular economy. So the circular economy assumes that we can recycle things and they have a, a symbol of an arrow going around in a circle. You might know that, that icon. Mm -hmm. uh, what's missing in that symbol is actually an arrow going out for the increasing entropy. So you can't really recycle something perfectly. It's impossible. And so that concept, the, the circular economy, is a false concept when we uh, take entropy into consideration. Yeah, I'm always so getting hand wavy and saying it's a spiral economy because if you take yeah. energy out of a circle, it doesn't connect back at the point. It misses and it keeps going like a whirlpool. Yeah, so the perfect recycling of something doesn't exist in, in the universe or in nature. And there are dangers for us in believing in that model. So, for example, and I'll, I'll, I won't diverge, I'll come back to the, to the concept of the planetary energy balance as well, but just as an example of recycling, plastic, we would have to assume, uh, in, in that circular economy, we might assume that plastics can be perfectly recycled, but that would be impossible. Plastics will always break down into microplastics and pollute the environment. So you've got to question whether a circular economy is really such a good idea um, for plastic. But for something like uh, water or carbon, there aren't those environmental implications because they're generally benign. But nonetheless, you still can't recycle things perfectly. But coming back to the planetary scale, um, you mentioned sunlight coming into the Earth, and the Earth is like a giant uh, eddy of life. And the reason that this is occurring is because the sun's radiation is coming in at relative, relatively um, high frequency, and then it's warming up the earth. Uh, it, it's, it's warmer than its black body temperature because of the greenhouse effect. And then it's re-emitting radiation back into space at a, at a lower frequency. The energy coming in and the energy going out from the earth are approximately balanced. But because the frequency of the radiation leaving is lower, because it's infrared, there are more photons leaving. So approximately 20 times more photons are leaving the Earth because of this frequency shift. And according to the physicists, photons have about the same entropy. So we get about 20 times more entropy loss from the Earth than gained uh, from the sun. And that's... That's why we get this negentropy that you mentioned. The negentropy or the negative entropy uh, is what allows life to emerge on the earth in, in this planetary uh, eddy of low entropy. Well, that's a really fascinating to dive into that as sort of planetary accounting. Um, and I wanna circle back to this concept of time discounting. And because this feels key as you know, so if the, the interesting thing here is I think that time discounting is enormous, is, is very rational in an entropic world, right? If you don't, if, if, if I'm a farmer mm. and I, with all of the uncertainty that I face, <clears throat> am too 
including, I think, a, a pretty solid intuitive understanding that uh, of the fragility of, of the opportunity, then I'm most likely to optimize for the m present moment, even at the expense of the future, right? And what's interesting is I think that people who are oftentimes people who have, are well-meaning, sort of do-good um, oriented, are holding a false ideal of how the world works, essentially, and hoping to impose that onto people who actually have a more accurate mental model of how the world works, intuitively, even if it's not, even if it's not theoretically robust, there's just like this intuitive understanding of, of how the world works. And that crux of the, you know, what science really tells us about the world and how we see behavior playing out in farmers around the world, I, I think is really important. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the silver gun hypothesis, because I think there's like, there's a, there's a way in which it meet, it, it potentially can meet the real world and the real people living in the real world in a way that other economic theories have not been able to do sort of sustainable, sustainable sustainability upgrades to economic theory have not been able to do yet. Yeah, this is a very exciting feature of the silver gun hypothesis because it actually provides a biophysical framework and explanation for why, effectively, why we do have time discounting in the first place. So uh, just to give a bit of background, um, economists uh, are very familiar with time discounting as a concept and they use it in the assessment of the social cost of carbon which is then used to justify the ideal carbon tax. Mm -hmm. And that approach falls under a general um, framework called cost versus benefit analysis. So that's another whole huge discussion. But um, at the basis of it, uh, economists acknowledge that we human beings do time discount. And so they actually use it formally to adjust the social cost of carbon which is the externalized cost of greenhouse gases in their assessments. Now, that work that they do contains paradoxes, unresolved paradoxes in the literature, which have not really been resolved. And the paradox is that uh, an economist could choose a relatively high discount rate or a relatively low discount rate. If they choose a high discount rate, it reduces the social cost of carbon and the tax, the carbon tax, if they choose a low discount rate, it increases the social cost of carbon, relatively speaking, and the, and the tax. So some economists who um, are concerned about climate change, they will intentionally use a lower time discount rate. And then other economists who are more sanguine and more, um, say, conventional and not so critical of the financial system, they will tend to use a higher time discount rate. So the point here is that you can have low taxes or high taxes depending on your time discount preference. And that's paradoxical because uh, if you consider what that means, uh, what it means in, in effect is something that most people simply won't acknowledge. And that is carbon taxes won't work uh, whether you use a low discount rate or a high discount rate because 
if you use a high discount rate, you end up with a low tax and then you don't protect the planet from catastrophic climate change. If you use a low discount rate and a very high tax, it still won't work because why? People don't like taxes, so it, it, it will be blocked politically. Yeah. And that's the, the key problem that uh, troubles taxes, and it has so for 20 or 30 years, but the economists are still persisting with this approach because they don't have any other understanding uh, around uh, carbon pricing and they don't spend the time to think about how to offer a carrot, a reward, because they um, only consider typical subsidies. But the analysis put forward here uh, is to introduce um, a policy which is uh, a global carrot that is debt-free and it doesn't tax anybody because it's structured on the notion that uh, we can reward people with a parallel currency system that is fully funded by monetary policy and currency trading. So to explain that and understand that, we'd have to go into the financial mechanism. But at this point in, in, in our conversation, I'll simply say this to make it kind of fit together. Um, the way this policy is developed is a claim that we can derive the global carbon reward from the carbon tax using an epistemic method. Okay, so an epistemic method is where we um, do this objectively using some sort of law or relationship. And the laws and relationships we're using are in fact the laws of thermodynamics. So what I'm really trying to say is that we take the carbon tax and we put it in front of a mirror and we look for its reflection in the mirror where that mirror is metaphorical for the epistemology. And the epistemology is one of taking into account um, uh, conservation of energy as a symmetric, time symmetric uh, relationship and taking into account entropy changes, which are time asymmetric. And so it's these relationships, which are quite complex, I have to admit, that appear to give us a reflected policy, a reflected image of the carbon tax, which is our global carbon reward. And by adhering to those relationships, the claim is made that we take care of the time discounting problem. Okay, so coming back to time discounting, uh, what do we notice about time discounting? Well, as I said, um, it's paradoxical. And what is entropy? Well, entropy by one definition is the arrow of time. So when you take into account the arrow of time, <clears throat> it appears we can resolve the temporal paradoxes, such as the time discounting paradox, and the other temporal paradoxes, which are also inherent to the climate problem, which include uh, the paradox of unsustainable growth. So growth versus degrowth is paradoxical, and that appears to be resolved and Jevons paradox, uh, which is an energy efficiency paradox that also appears to be resolved. So there are uh, philosophical and theoretical reasons to consider this approach as possibly being fundamental uh, as a solution. And yeah. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, so, and, and um, to, 
to reiterate the the approach the approach is to use um our use an estimate of the um imbalance created by you know uh, global society and you know post-industrial industrial society and the the sort of the outbreath the carbon outbreath of all of that economic activity in order to create a reward currency that is essentially minted and um, minted and rewarded specifically to an economy dedicated to the carbon inbreath um, is that accurate? That, that's very accurate. And, and that is uh, the main theme that comes out of the living systems economy. Um, earlier, I mentioned that the living systems economy model is the high level model. It's relatively sim simple. Silver gun is the bottom up model, which is more complex. But looking at the living systems economy model, the top down model, it basically says we need two economic systems. Uh, one is the existing system, which is the outbreath of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and we need the parallel economy for the inbreath, which is um, in effect uh, biophysically similar to photosynthesis that pulls in CO2. And I'd just like to unpack that a little bit for, for, for the audience because this is really important. Um, today, uh, and since the beginning of the UNFCCC, um, conferences and, and, and discussions around climate change. It's been assumed by everybody generally that we would solve the climate problem with the existing economy. Uh, now, if we introduce the notion of entropy uh, in, in living systems, it's very important to understand that uh, organic life and organic living systems they do not have the capacity to reverse their carbon balance. So if you take, for example, uh, an animal or a fungus, uh, we never see an example of an animal or a fungus reversing its carbon balance. They only respire carbon, they don't do the opposite. Mm -hmm. And this is true right down to the cellular level. So you take a mitochondria, which is, the respiring um, cell-like structure of animals and plants and fungi, uh, the mitochondria are a one-way street chemically. Like they only work towards respiration. They don't do photosynthesis. If you want photosynthesis, you have to go to the chloroplast, which are the cell-like structures in plants. They photosynthesize. And the point I make is that it is well known that these living cellular structures they are effectively irreversible in their chemistry. And this is the key word that we need to introduce into our vocabulary, and that's irreversibility. And the point is that if we take, if we unpack irreversibility as a concept, uh, how do we explain it? Well, the way it's explained is simply with the concept of entropy, because it's increasing entropy that really underpins the notion of irreversibility of these processes. Or in other words, um, if you get down to the level of the molecular machinery, you simply can't expect that machinery to go in reverse because the probabilities are too low 
bit like playing a game of billiards. Uh, you hit the white ball and you scatter the other balls. The probability of everything going in reverse is vanishingly small because of the chaotic nature of particles moving around. So it's also true for the molecular machinery of cells and other enzymes and things. And the point here is that when we scale up to the human economy, it has been assumed uh, for decades now, ever since climate change was discovered as a, uh, a problem, it's been assumed that the human economy was reversible, that we'd simply use the economy make some adjustments with taxes or new financial policies or regulation and we simply go in reverse with our carbon become net carbon neutral or even go carbon negative but if we uh, revision this conceptual model and to admit that our economy as it stands is a system that has a very low chance of reversing itself with respect to carbon and there's ample data and modeling evidence to suggest that's the case. Uh, you can look at the mainstream model results, the statistical analyses, the thermodynamic analyses, they all say the same thing, that the chances of uh, staying under two degrees is, is very low. You're talking less than 5% and that would be generous. So um, reframing this, uh, I would simply say that there are many reasons to believe that our economy has the quality or property of being irreversible with respect to carbon, meaning that we don't have the control we need or the agency we need to get to net zero emissions by say mid-century. We don't have the agency we need to uh, stay below one and a half, two degrees. Now, why don't we have that agency? What, what is it about the economy that prevents us from having that level of control and the reversibility we're looking for. Well, the interesting thing actually, um, Gregory, is that one of the major reasons structurally is the monetary system. So when you look at the monetary system, uh, which is a national fiat system, that money, um, most of it, more than 90% approximately, is created through commercial bank lending. And when banks lend the money into existence, it has to be paid back with interest. Therefore, all market actors generally have a requirement to make a profit in a competitive economy to pay back their loans with interest. Now, uh, analyses of this system um, indicate that it's unstable when there is no growth. So governments and central banks mandated in effect to maintain a minimum level of economic growth so we have financial stability and there you have it that is very strong evidence that uh, we have a growth-based economy we have to have a certain amount of growth otherwise we'll have financial instability and when you tie that knowledge to our historical understanding of growth we've never had green growth uh, statistically, in terms of the data, there's no such thing as clean green growth. It's always been dirty. Hence, uh, we, we can't really have uh, the kind of rapid clean growth we would need to stay under two degrees. Now, remember, um, maybe about 10, 15 minutes ago, I mentioned that 
we use this epistemology to derive the global carbon reward from the carbon tax. Mm. In, in that epistemology, what's special about it is that we, there's a kind of step or translation of policies uh, done around the unit of account of the carbon tax policy. And when we do that translation, uh, theoretically, we, we create the parallel currency. Now, this becomes um, a kind of axiomatic or self-evident solution because we acknowledge that the monetary system is part of the problem. It's a structural component of the problem of climate change. And then the epistemology points us to parallel currency. And hence, we begin to see that um, the laws of thermodynamics are guiding us towards a structural solution that appears to be natural and fundamental to uh, human economies. And so a very deep question emerges from this approach, a very deep theoretical and philosophical question. And the question is this, uh, why does it work? Like if we do this translation of the carbon tax through this epistemic mirror, and we arrive at the global carbon reward, and then it provides us with a solution which appears to work theoretically and resolving paradoxes and um, offering us a pathway to a safe climate. Why? Why, why does it work? And this is where uh, we need a more fundamental answer. And this is where the multi-agent theory comes in, the silver gun hypothesis, which is the, the bottom-up approach. Uh, and that's the, that's the model that needs to be experimentally tested to, to find that final proof. So, so essentially, what you're proposing is the need for a complementary um, economy, complete with its own currency, um, complete with a like sort of a new financial system that has that ties the creation of a new currency um, to a new mechanism and allows a, a complementary um, photosynthesis uh, optimized um, global economy, essentially. Yeah, and I think we, we probably should have spent more time on the living systems economy because uh, it, what it tells us is that we need a minimum, a minimum of two systems to manage the carbon balance. The first system is existing economy, and the second system is this complementary currency and the economy that it creates. So I, I, it is a complementary currency, but I tend to call it a stateless parallel currency. And it's an analogy, or it's analogous to what we see in nature. So it's analogous to respiration, so existing economy has many properties that are similar to respiration in animals and fungi. And the parallel economy that we don't have, but the one we apparently need with the parallel currency, it has thermodynamic properties that are analogous to photosynthesis in plants. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at nature, you know, the food web for life on earth, you could see very clearly at the base of the food web is are plants and the energy for the food web is 99% solar energy. Obviously it's captured by plants through photosynthesis to make sugars. 
and that energy flows up to the herbivores and then the um, then the carnivores and the, then the primary uh, predators at the top of the food web. Um, and that's the way it works. So when, when we look at our economy, the human economy, it's a kind of uh, superorganism that manifests out of us, Homo sapiens, to create a superorganism. Now, if our superorganism or if our world economy is analogous to respiration, uh, what would you, ex would you expect it to do? Well, it consumes, doesn't it? Like, in a sense, like an animal consumes. So our superorganism, our human economy, is consuming plants, animals, and other natural resources such as fossil fuels. And that uh, situation we're currently in is very unbalanced because at the level of our economy, we don't have a, a balancing system to take care of our carbon emissions like there exists in the natural food web, which is supported at the base by photosynthesis. So in this reanalysis of economic systems as living systems, what it points towards is the fact that the, or the idea I should say, that we need the parallel economy based on the complementary currency that we're discussing that acts as uh, another superorganism at the very top of our planetary food web that will provide the service of um, additional photosynthesis and carbon sequestration, carbon abatement, and also a regeneration of the biosphere because we're mm -hmm. overconsuming it. But so uh, for this to make sense, you need a very generalized model. And uh, the silver gun hypothesis, which is a multi-agent theory, it, it is very generalized. And um, it has the capacity to explain not just uh, human economy, but it also has the capacity to explain uh, the emergence of all the multicellular life forms in the tree of life. That's all the eukaryotes, the animals, the fungi, and the plants the human economy as well, and uh, this parallel economy. So, so just very briefly, what I like about this model is how comprehensive it is. It sort of provides a framing that we can compare our economy with nature, uh, and it gives us a place in nature rather than alienating us from nature. And, and this um, potentially is quite a liberating concept because if you consider what we have on the table at the moment in, in the narrative over sustainability and climate change, we, we mainly have on the table um, many different dysfunctional discussions and, and a lot of blame. So we're pointing the finger at governments, politicians, we're pointing the finger at um, fossil fuel companies and ourselves. And all, all of this blaming each other is not getting us to a safer climate. It's just creating more tension and it's, it's uh, highlighting the dysfunction in the politics of climate change without actually providing um, a deep solution, a biophysical understanding of what's happening and it's not offering a pathway to long-term sustainability. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, fantastic. Well, so, um, all right. 
so so there's a lot of layers here and i'm trying to think of um which one to focus on so where my mind is running is well i mean first off just um there's a lot of parallels with the way that we've been approaching things at Regen Network, and some of our original um, some of our original thinking was centered around this concept of um, that we were calling reverse mining, which was essentially a reward that is only a reward currency that is minted and distributed for actions that are ecologically regenerative, um, mostly focused on carbon cycle outcomes, but with a little bit of a sort of a holistic approach around um, water and biodiversity and other indicators of ecological health and sort of mm. a, an approach that can create um, um, climate balance through human activity. So I resonate very strongly with the sort of imperative for a deep um, um, reinvention of the global economy and financial system. And um, so that really resonates and, and it, I've appreciated, I feel like your explanation of the kind of um, theoretical um, underpinnings of what that approach necessitates is very lucid. So I'm really appreciating that. Um, where my mind, where my mind is going is kind of in two different directions. One is sort of, um, you know, what, what are the conditions needed? What, what groups of, society need to buy into this as an imperative what are the basic i've you know so to, to to turn that into that's sort of like the direction that my mind is wandering um the i think to put a fine point on a question that that takes us in a couple of steps in that direction it would be what what is the role of the current financial system and the current structure of central banking in the creation of this complementary currency and economy or this living currency and living economy. Um, do we need them to buy into it or not? Who needs to buy into it? I mean, eventually, everyone in the world needs to believe in the value of this currency so that it has, in turn, has value and, you know, can be, can be exchanged on markets um, in, in, for goods and services or in exchange for currency that allows you to access goods and services. So, so obviously, we have to achieve, in order for this hypothesis to work, sort of like a societal buy-in. Right, mm. um, and faith in the value. Um, what do you see as the chain, the most rational chain to create that kind of societal buy-in and faith in a currency like this? Right, well, there are different levels and layers of buy-in. So perhaps the first people to have influence in the buy-in 
would be scientists and physicists because they would be the people who would first um, consider the living systems economy model and determine for themselves whether it's plausible. Now, generally speaking, um, my assumption is that society generally do trust physicists, okay? Because whether it's fair or not, uh, society tends to believe that physics and physicists are fully objective and uh, we consider them to be smart people. So if they uh, can review and test the hypothesis and if they come up with information that says it's a, a reliable hypothesis, then that would be the first level because they could then begin a new narrative around how humanity could achieve long-term sustainability. Now, that is not necessarily ideal because um, physicists and scientists are quite a long way away from policy development and central banks. But somehow we would have to bypass the conventional economic narratives and attract the ears of politicians and central bank governors. Because if we tried to go through the conventional um, institutions created by neoclassical economists, they would um and ah and delay for a very long time because they, um, they generally don't uh, buy into the natural sciences as being a valid framework for, for understanding or managing the economy. But they generally speak, they're not speaking for all of them, but they tend to consider economics to be a purely social science. And some of them consider it not to be a science at all, maybe entirely political and empirical. But at this level, um, we would need to take a, a shortcut uh, and bring into a new narrative in, in plain sight of everybody and certainly in the radar of central bank governors and um, policy institutions, the notion that we have to go beyond neoclassical economics and we're into a new era, a new paradigm of uh, a biophysical framing for sustainability uh, and economics. Now, that's a big ask. Because yeah, that sounds terrifying, Dalton. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. We, it's it, it like, is. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like it, it's sort of like uh, a scenario of having to have the cool kids in your high school like you. Uh, there's so many social dynamics. It's not. Uh, at least uh, maybe I'm jaded, but I don't have the experience of academia having um, the capacity to, um, in any sort of quick way digest and transform paradigms without enormous social struggle without it without it being about sort of like uh social dynamics if as it were there is no my experience and again i'm biased sort of against the ivory tower um in my mm -hmm. life experience but um, um so i'm more of a radical like autodidact you know, not inside the ivory tower persona, I suppose. Although, you know, I, I have friends in that world. It's not, I'm not 
such a firebrand. But anyway, my bias is it's unlikely to get anything done there. It's that's where good ideas go to die. That's where <laughs> that's where people spend time getting the the right answers to the wrong questions as a living. That's so so I'm like, oh no, Delton, this great idea. We don't want it to go there to die. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, whilst we have uh, living, breathing scientists and economists and Extinction Rebellion protesters and environmentalists, there is a chance. So uh, one hopes that um, there will be some people in some institutions, whether it's in the European Union or United States or a developing country, perhaps in a developing country where they're under much more environmental pressure, there may be some individuals who are willing to step outside the box and support uh, a radical approach that um, can be implemented with a pilot study. Now, when I say radical approach, we have to be careful here by what it means. What's radical is not the policy. What's radical is the theory underpinning the policy, the biophysical revision of, of modern economies. But the financial mechanism itself can be explained to any economist or a central bank economist and monetary uh, economist because it's really uh, about creating a new unit of account, an exchange rate mechanism, supply and demand, and the Ministry of Infrastructure that you're familiar with, with the Regen Network. So, as you know, there are ways using new technologies, digital technologies, to develop quite comprehensive decentralized ministry systems to manage contracts and data and analysis, measurement, reporting, verification, etc. So we have the technology, we understand the mechanisms, so it can be implemented and explained in a, in a conventional way. Uh, it's just the justification that is radical. Do we need um, central bankers to buy in? Are they the first people? I mean, I think eventually, obviously it needs ubiquity, right? But it, I think, if I understand the theory correctly, um, there needs that, that you're proposing a unified um, system of essentially, you know, carbon accounting as the underpinning for this, for, for a new global reward currency, um, which, I mean, I have some questions about that in terms of just sort of theory of change, but but setting that aside, the like taking that for granted and saying, okay, that's that's the arena that we're focused on. Um, do so. I guess my question is, where is there money to be made in taking a risk on creating this kind of alternative system? Right. Um... I'll, I'll answer your question and I'll come back to central bank mandates, which is also really important. So if, it, if the policy gains traction in a narrative, then there's a good chance or a chance that corporations and investors, pension funds, currency traders, Wall Street, will realize that if this policy goes through, it creates for everybody a new profit center because the policy will uh, by its own design, expand the money supply. So as part of the financial mechanism, all the world's central banks will uh, create new fiat currency as they need, and they'll use this new currency to buy our parallel currency. 
and uh, to create demand for it. It's underwriting this new currency. And so the new currency we introduce, which has a unit of account of carbon by mass, carbon mitigation services, um, it will be supplied in proportion to the mitigation rate. And so our new currency has some qualities that are somewhat similar to commodity currencies. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what's not obvious at first is, is how this will affect um, currency markets, because the parallel stateless currency that we're talking about it will actually appreciate in value over time as part of the policy. Therefore, if anybody buys it, they can enjoy the benefit of its rising exchange rate, which is um, a, a pegged exchange rate. It's pegged to rise over many decades. Therefore, it's an investment. It's a security. And uh, Wall Street can buy the currency and enjoy the profits of, of buying it and owning it and trading it. And um, to Cut a long story short, what the policy does is it uses the central banks to underwrite a bull market in this new currency system. Once you create a, a secular bull market, um, investors simply follow uh, by buying it uh, as an investment. And the kinds of investors that may appreciate this approach would be pension funds and hedge funds and retail investors, because um, as you might know, pension funds in particular, they have a dilemma about investing into the future because they um, are supposed to provide appreciating assets for retirees into the future. And they have a dilemma of um, seeking out sustainable climate friendly investments when most of the market is dependent on fossil fuels. So if we introduce this currency as an investment, they uh, probably will appreciate that. And if we could explain to the pension funds what the policy implies for them, I think they would support it. And I think the reinsurance companies would also support it because their entire business model for insuring all kinds of assets from houses to bridges and, and everything, that model is going to collapse if we have abrupt climate change. As soon as the uh, insurance model, insurance industry collapses, that's the end for civilization. Once we can't insure anything, uh, everything falls apart. It's, it's certainly um, one of the signs we'll see on the way to uh, collapse of our civilization should we go past three or four degrees of global warming, which at this so, stage is quite likely. Yeah. So. So, so it sounds like there's, there's a relationship, there's an interesting relationship between the decentralized infrastructure, something like region network, and the role of um, fiat central banks in this case, because what I'm not hearing you propose is that the fiat central banks own or run the infrastructure. In fact, that probably wouldn't work out very well. But what I'm hearing you propose is that they underwrite and sort of guarantee the market that, that a um, stateless decentralized infrastructure allows to exist in, in sort of uh, the upkeep of this new unit of account. 
maybe, um, Gregory, if I tried to explain it um, through the living systems economy model itself, because that, that was uh, set up to explain this question. Sure. So in the living systems economy model, we have two open systems. Uh, they're analogous to respiration and photosynthesis. And the way these two systems can naturally achieve carbon neutrality is by um, the respiration cycle producing the same amount of carbon as sequestered by the photosynthesis cycle. Now, how do these two systems interact? Well, it's through the transfer of sugars. So the, the photosynthesis cycle of a plant uh, creates sugars and it sends the sugars to the respiration cycle. The sending of sugars across in, in that example is analogous to the exchange rate in our economies. Mm -hmm. So the exchange rate has to be managed by some institution and that is central banks. So this is why central banks in the existing economy are needed to transfer purchasing power and resources into our new parallel economy. Um, in this solution, we don't get rid of the existing economy. The existing economy probably can continue on for a long, long time. It's just that it, it won't uh, be alone. It, it, it needs to be macroeconomically uh, managed such that enough of the resources uh, allocated to the new economy, the parallel economy for climate mitigation services. And, and the amount of resources that have to be sent across from the existing economy to the parallel economy is the amount that we need to achieve carbon neutrality and net negative emissions to stay under two degrees or one and a half degrees or whatever it's going to be uh, for a safe climate. Do you have an so, idea of the, the magnitude of that um, transference? Um, I can't give you numbers in terms of energy, but in terms of exchange rate, we could approximate the uh, exchange rate of our new parallel currency based on uh, the price of carbon that has been estimated for carbon taxes, just as a very rough estimate, preliminary estimate. So the preliminary estimate is that we need some, a price in the range of say 80 to $180 a ton, US dollars per ton. So if that is the reward price, currently that's the estimate for carbon taxes, but if we flip it and say that's roughly what we might need for rewarding climate mitigation services, that's the level of um, transfer we would need and that price would rise over time. So the reward price would rise through, through most of the century until um, the risk of abrupt climate change is managed and we begin to see a stabilization of um, carbon emissions and the climate system. Uh, I, I, I can't really put figures on it because um, I don't do quantitative modeling. I only do the analytical and conceptual modeling. Right. Well, so, I mean, we could, we could think about that really quickly. We could think we need something like it, it's a thousand gigatons, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, to balance, to, to achieve that sort of like on the time frame that's set out in the the Paris Climate Agreement to achieve um, 
we need a thousand gigatons of combined drawdown and reduction over the next 20 years, let's say. That sounds about right, yeah. So, um, a gigaton or a petaton, uh, uh, petagram, sorry, gigaton or a petagram is, um, and that's of C, not of CO2. So, you know, the, the carbon pricing is all in CO2 equivalency. So the number I like is um, based on the, the actual cost accounting of a shift in, for instance, agriculture towards um, a um, regenerative approach that has net carbon drawdown instead of net carbon emission, which is estimated by Dr. Ratan Lal at Ohio State University to be $144 uh, per um, ton of, of CO2 equivalent. So um, I think that's right. No, it's, a, it's, it's $144 per ton of C. <clears throat> and then you would extrapolate out CO2 equivalent from there. So, yeah, it's a lot of money. I'd have to, I'd have to do some, I'll, I'll write myself a note to do some calculation. I, I think it's, it's, it's important. I mean, wrapping our head around that. Um, and just yeah, those numbers sound about right because uh, there are various estimates from IEA and uh, the UN about the cost of uh, transitioning out of fossil fuels and the cost of implementing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And, and these estimates range around one, two, three trillion a year up to six trillion a year. So uh, if we put a rough figure on it of around, say, three trillion a year over uh, 50 to 100 years, you, you're looking around 100 trillion, 300 trillion over the rest of the century. And uh, given that you said uh, we need to abate and sequester around, I think you said, a thousand gigatons, well, that, that's a trillion tons. Yeah, that's right. It's a trillion tons. Mm. So you multiply that by, say, $300 a ton. That's 300 trillion, so we've got the right numbers. Yeah. Yeah, so the cost, uh, just a ballpark for you, it may be 300 trillion roughly uh, for the rest of the century. And that's the level of uh, wealth transfer from an existing economy into a parallel economy. Um, yeah, so it's about 3% of the global economy. Yeah, three, five percent. And this is not excluding taxes as well. Taxes still should be used, but we won't need to rely on them so much. We, we don't need to experience $180 a ton tax imposed on the world uh, when the working class and the poor uh, and peasant farmers, etc., they, they don't want this tax. They, um, they don't have this the cash for discretionary spending. They're just surviving on a day-to-day -day basis, many of them, and they can't afford um, directly higher 
taxes on energy and fossil fuels. So what's happening in this new model is that there will be taxes where they're, when they are socially progressive, but the cost of this policy will be dispersed in two key ways. The first way is through central bank currency trading. Uh, when they expand the money supply, what they're going to do effectively is create a thin uniform inflation across the world economy. So there will be an inflation levy uh, that most people won't see or notice because it will exist right across the whole world economy. And the other way it's paid for is through private currency trading. So as I said before, the currency becomes an investment. And uh, when market actors buy the currency, what they're doing is saving because they're buying this asset, financial asset, they save it for the future. And when the saving rate increases, there is less money going into circulation for other things. Um, and that will have a certain cost in terms of slowing the economy somewhat. Couldn't it just be, I mean, I guess I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, economist, but you know, if inflation is somewhere around 3%, 3% is like a healthy inflation rate. Um, so if what we're talking about is a global inflation of 3%, which is sort of in keeping with, you know, current, um, the current considerations of what creates a healthy monetary supply and a healthy economy, couldn't we just assign 100% of that inflation to, the, to buying the reward currency and that's just how it goes? And then, you know, that's how new money is, you know, essentially? I mean, you may not be able to answer that question, but it seems like there may not even need to be a, a global, an additional global levy or additional global, global in, increase of circulating supply. It could be the existing increase, you know, annual increase that just gets, you know, allocated to, you know, purchasing these reward, uh, this reward currency at a fixed rate, essentially. Yeah, I, I, I do struggle sometimes with the concept of inflation. And I think um, inflation is a somewhat emotional topic for many people, because for reasons I can't explain, uh, people tend to have a reflexive fear of inflation. Like people often talk about hyperinflation as being a risk when central banks produce more money, etc. Another way to look at this question of inflation is to actually forget about uh, inflation for a moment and just think about what's going on in the real world. So the real costs in the real world uh, can be conceptualized in terms of actual resources. So what this policy will do is divert uh, usable energy and other resources, including labor, to the activities of abating and sequestering carbon. And uh, when you think of it in those terms, there will be a cost because if we are not using energy and resources for sequestering carbon, what would we be doing with it? We'd probably be consuming more fun things like holidays to Hawaii and uh, SUVs and um, big meals out at fancy restaurants. So uh, at some point, there will have to be 
some, dare I call it a sacrifice of usable energy and resources as it shifted into the parallel economy for the purpose of abating and sequestering carbon. But there is a, um, a benefit of this approach. It's not just a cost in real terms. There is a real world benefit when those climate uh, mitigation actions create new kinds of social and environmental benefits or co-benefits. So you would be familiar with the benefits of regenerative farming, for example, and that could include um, a more diverse range of food, um, healthier food, less pesticides, less um, reliance on herbicides, fertilizers and chemicals, um, a more, perhaps more reliable food source, more diverse, and potentially employing more people in local industries and cottage industries. So reduce insurance risk, um, re reduce costs, direct costs to, you know, insurance municipalities and, you know, other people who, who have um, sort of fairly large annual outlay for the externalized costs of soil erosion and flooding and, you know, and health. I mean, you could also think about it in terms of the, you know, what, what is the shift of the healthcare industry when we're not paying for the, the consequences of uh, pesticide and herbicide use and low nutrient foods um, and, and sort of like uh, a lack of diversity in diets. So all of those things, I think there's sort of like a direct um, financial benefit to certain certain industries, although it's also going to be threatening to other industries. For instance, healthcare. I mean, there's a whole sort of healthcare industrial complex, at least in the United States, that's built on, uh, you know, <laughs> the sickness, essentially. Like, so it will be threatening to certain industries, right? Yeah, I, I think it will be. And so um, I think there is a need to be aware that if the world does transition to food production systems that are sustainable over the long term, uh, we'd have to question whether that would involve um, uh, carbon intensive chemicals. And would it indeed be possible to transition to a more um, sustainable organic based food production system? If, if it is possible, and if it requires um, using much less of the chemical products, then I think um, a politically uh, feasible pathway would be to involve corporations in that transition and giving them opportunities to participate by um, maybe creating new goods and services that help the transition. So, for example, um, maybe some of the chemical companies that produce, um, say, nitrogen fertilizer, maybe they could come up with systems and technologies that can reduce <coughs> the use of fossil fuels. Uh, then they can earn the reward 
they get the financial benefit and then they can pass on the new technology to um, farmers. So I just thought of that as an example just at that moment. So it might not be a good example, but that is one of the hopes of this reward-based scheme that we don't actually attack directly any corporations or existing business models. We say, well, look, if you participate and you innovate, you can earn a reward by um, uh, transitioning your business model out of carbon intensive stocks and flows and provide an alternative and we'll reward you based on the carbon abatement and the social environmental co-benefits. Yes. Yeah. So it no, kind I think of opens up a new paradigm. I think that's right on. And, and <clears throat> if you also consider that there may be national and international uh, taxes, so you have the carrot and the stick, it, it starts to be much more economically attractive to be participating in, in the, the new economy that sort of has a ecological commons pres preservation as its underpinning. Exactly. And um, if, if we had time to really analyze this whole model uh, from beginning to end, and that could take quite a long time, so we probably won't. But um, what's fascinating about the model is that when we go through the process of understanding that we can abate and sequester carbon and also reward social and ecological co-benefits, what we're doing is creating a new paradigm for um, capitalism, for business models. And uh, we also, if it works, we also create a new pathway to long-term sustainability given that climate change has to be addressed for sustainability to be possible, given that carbon is probably the one element in the periodic table that provides um, an essential framework for organizing living systems, it does make sense in my mind to bring that into the world economy structurally. So we have the parallel, stateless parallel currency for the whole world. It's got a unit of account of, uh, say, 100 kilograms of CO2 equivalent mitigated over 100 years. So that's a unit of account. It's a biophysical unit. Um, some similarities with commodity money. And uh, if it works, if, if it does bring about a new paradigm of sustainability, um, there are philosophical questions which arise with this new model. And, and one of the questions would be, uh, what is it doing in our economy that brings about sustainability? And, and one, one answer to that question, and there are many layers to this answer, but one answer to the question is that it introduces a new context for value. So the context for value is to a large degree determined by the unit of account of money we use. So if you consider national fiat currencies as the primary example, it's well known that our fiat money, the unit of account is only legally declared. It has no relationship to the physical world in its definition because it's um, just an informational unit mm -hmm. backed by the government the armies and the police. And so 
with the, the, the parallel currency we're discussing, the unit of account of, a, of, of kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent mitigated over 100 years, that does introduce a new context to, to money. And it's that context which allows us to um, redefine, in a sense, the value of everything. Because once that money is in circulation, in theory at least, you can um, discuss the value of anything in, in the economy. The value of your uh, laptop computer, the value of a McDonald's hamburger, the value of any consumable item. Uh, if you just convert it to parallel currency, it immediately tells us its value in terms of a climate mitigation services, which is an ecosystem service. And it's this new context that explains um, how sustainability is possible. And in a practical sense, what it's saying is that we have new discipline in the world economy. The discipline is provided by the exchange rate mechanism for this particular currency and the way we administer it to ensure that the supply of the currency is proportional to the mitigation rate. Uh, and we have a social agreement um, that's international, uh, would require governments of the world to agree to mandate the central banks to coordinate on, under a common policy to manage um, the exchange rate of this new currency. And, and that international agreement, if it were to take place, it creates the reciprocity that society or humanity would need to coordinate the world economy. And this, this notion of global coordination, I think is, is reasonable. Um, it does marry with uh, the idea that we do need a global price on carbon, a global decarbonization. Um, but the, the interesting thing about it, it's almost an irony is that in, in theoretical terms, it could be implemented as a reward, whereas with taxes, it's very difficult to get a global price as a tax because every nation state has specific sensitivities to carbon taxes based on their, um, their phase in economic development and how wealthy they are. And the, you know, <laughs> there's many different variables that affect the politics of, of, of any country. Take Australia, for example. Carbon taxes are certainly not on the table for discussion here in Australia, or haven't been for the last uh, five or so years. So I have a question around, is it possible to have some sort of standard, but have it be a, a multiplicity of different reward currencies? So that, that have some sort of like standard exchange rate so that you can have a decentralized sort of bootstrapping period in which, you know, there can be, um, yeah, multiple focal points for it because the, the complexity of, you know, a hundred grams or a hundred kilos of carbon over a hundred years, um, the, the difference, 
there's it's wildly complex and different to account for that in say agriculture or forestry versus oceans versus sort of like direct air capture or emissions reduction um you know through re shifting to renewables or something like that so i'm curious if you think it's possible to start sort of like more nodally with multiple different approaches that eventually sort of like turn into a standard unit of account over time, or if we need to affix the standard at the beginning, because it seems to me at a, at a practical level, the, the generation of consensus around that standard unit of account and where you place the baseline and all of these other things is likely to be one of the most challenging places where in the short term, there is will around particular, you know, um, subsets of that. There's sort of will and clarity in smaller communities that you can aggregate. So I'm just curious your thoughts about that. Okay. Um, when we drill down into the microeconomics of how to administer rewards, uh, the unit of account will be universal. That's by definition, 100 kilograms carbon dioxide equivalent mitigated for 100 years. That's the unit. And so to implement that unit across the whole world uh, is, an, is a massive administrative uh, challenge for the reasons you mentioned. Um, and what I propose as part of the policy is a governance model to deal with that. And in combination with two general rules. So uh, there is one rule for sequestration projects, which is simply estimating the net mass of carbon mitigated through sequestration. And the other is abatement. So abatement is where you reduce existing pollution. And um, abatement is actually quite tricky compared to sequestration to assess. But there is a general rule for both of these two rules that take into account the, the carbon balances of the entire project. So that aspect of the policy uh, is taken care of. Assuming that those rules are reasonable, then the governance model, I think, could work if we um, define bioregions or political regions around the world, say at the level of states or municipalities or larger regions maybe even by catchment or something like that. And uh, we then involve the people, the communities in those bioregions to help design the standards for their region. So the local communities and farmers and, and um, capitalists and citizens, they may have preferences for the standards they believe apply to them. And then they can, in a sense, vote those standards in and vote in uh, reward weightings for co-benefits for society and the environment. Now, if, if such a, a model or governance model were implemented, it can work as long as the quantity of reward given is always held proportional to the quantity of carbon that's abated or sequestered. As long as that general relationship is maintained, then the details can be worked out at a very granular level. 
in a decentralized system that in, in a way it crowdsources the standards that people want to use. Mm -hmm. There will be checks and balances where scientists would be employed to uh, go over it, make sure it's reasonable. And um, as long as there are those checks and balances, I think it can be um, crowdsourced from uh, local communities and farmers and scientists who are familiar with the area, because you have to admit that there will be different standards and issues for farmers in North America, uh, such as in your area in New York state compared to what's going on in the Amazon or compared to what's happening in rural Australia, because they're different geographies and different climates, different vegetation and crops and animals and cultural expectations. So you don't want to force onto people standards. You want to allow them to choose standards or develop standards. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. Um, so to sort of paint a picture of what needs to happen in the next couple of years in order to um, test and then deploy the silver gun hypothesis. It, what I'm picking up is essentially we need to be able to engage um, a highly competent modeling institution or group to be able to um, run multi-agent simulations of, of the hypothesis. Um, we need to be able to engage um, enough of the financial industry, especially central bankers with, um, I think mostly probably relationship building and, and creating kind of an invitation to consider what the implications of this are um, so that they're sort of um, can, you know, maybe build some allies and, and some relationships and some fine champions within that community. Um, and we need to build the, the infrastructure on the rails on which this whole sort of um, decentralized stateless reward currency can run, right? And we may need to also have some either in parallel or after the simulations take place, there needs to be local sort of some local implementations that are underwritten in some way by uh, you know, municipality or a corporate where we can actually see the process of a watershed or bioregional um, participatory design of the details of the reward currency and then see it working for a little bit so that then um, it can be sort of uh, up, uptaken into a, a more global context. Is that a fair description of the roadmap ahead of us? Yeah, Gregory, uh, you got a job, okay? You got it, nailed it on the head. So um, <laughs> I think if we, we get funded, we'll have to employ you because you, you summed it up pretty much uh, in that there are um, a number of activities that would need to occur in parallel. You mentioned the multi-agent modeling. Uh, ideally, we would attract uh, some physicists and transdisciplinary multi-agent modelers 
to set up experiments to verify, validate theory. Um, it, it is presented online in a working paper with a, a semi-formal verification and validation, but that's still a few steps away from an actual uh, experimental proof or experimental test. Mm -hmm. That's foundational and, and that's really for, uh, you know, scholars and intellectuals and researchers. But bringing it into the practical application, um, yeah, I agree with you. We, we need the engagement with central banks and that narrative. Uh, we come in as an outsider, so we, we have to uh, deal with the, the problem of being a novel idea that's, that's not actually included in the mandates of central banks. That's something which is really key that I'd like to clarify for the audience, and that is um, today, central banks have very specific mandates and those mandates, generally speaking, require them to remain market neutral. And what that means in practice is that they uh, are not generally allowed to uh, create new money to favour climate mitigation services. So generally speaking, they, when they um, buy government bonds or commercial bonds or other securities, they buy right across the market. They don't sort of favour low carbon projects over carbon intensive ones. Although that may be changing somewhat in that they're buying more climate bonds, or green bonds, but still this market neutrality concept reigns supreme. And so that's, becomes the, the, um, the sensitive point. That's the nerve center of this whole discussion because if we were to propose a global carbon reward, we're challenging that um, belief system that central banks should be market neutral. And what, what, what I'm saying is that that has to be revised based on a new understanding of carbon pricing for uh, managing the global carbon balance, everything we've discussed in, in, in this interview, uh, which has a biophysical basis. And so that is a very deep and long discussion. Whether or not it can happen, we will find out. I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I, I have some ideas about that that we, we can chat about offline. But the, um, well, so my, my last question here. Um, to, to end out the interview is um, how can our listeners engage and support? Um, you know, what, what does it look like? And specifically, I'm thinking in this case about the community engaged with applied cryptography, distributed ledger technology, blockchain, and sort of the, the intersection of that community and sort of the earth care um, regenerative agriculture community that region network represents, you know, how can listeners engage support um, your work? Yeah, um, I'd love to talk about that. So a new initiative from our uh, project is to launch the living systems economy on a website, which has the domain name living systems economy.org. And uh, we only just started uh, putting a little bit of content up on that domain name, but we're planning in the near future to 
give the first presentations on the living systems economy, uh, a webinar and a podcast or something like that. And then we're going to build into it a, a crowdfund. We're going to raise some money so that I can keep working on this with my colleagues. Um, then we're going to take it into two directions. We're going to seek endorsements from everybody interested in the solution. And we're going to take those endorsements as signatures on letters and we'll post those out to uh, financial regulators, institutions and central banks, asking them to consider the new um, pricing model for carbon. And then we'll take uh, the Living Systems Economy project uh, to corporates and we will seek corporate sponsorship to pay for the, the testing. So we'll need some money to hire some good physicists and uh, mathematicians and scientists to set up some kind of experimental test for the underlying hypothesis called the silver gun hypothesis, this multi-agent theory. If out of that we can find strong evidence for the hypothesis, then that should support our new narrative uh, with central banks because if you think about what we're proposing, we're proposing uh, a significant restructuring of the monetary system. And for such a serious and significant proposal, it would be helpful to have um, some experimental evidence to back it up. Mm -hmm. The other kind of evidence that we can find is through social experiments. So we can then ask central banks and governments to fund a pilot project. We might find a country, uh, maybe a vulnerable country, Bangladesh or Pacific Island nation state that will like to be involved in a pilot study. And um, then we can roll out digital currency. So for people who are currently involved in regen network, in blockchains, etc., um, I'd ask them to, to keep an eye on the living systems economy, to look at the conceptual model. And um, when we get some traction there, then we will discuss some other ideas we have for uh, a commercial vehicle to also raise more money to implement the, the full application of this stateless parallel currency and an administrative system that could go global uh, with the kinds of technologies that you're working on, the um, administrative system for quantifying carbon mitigation services and contracts, etc. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um... I'm very excited to, to collaborate, to keep track of um, progress, and um, I'll be thinking of ways to support and the, the sort of the, these next steps around testing and education and conversation. And, um, you know, if there's any way that, that we can um, serve to further the, the evolution of the, of the concept, please uh, don't be shy. Uh, thanks, Gregory. And um, if, if anybody has any questions about the uh, living systems economy, um, just try and contact me through uh, the internet. You'll probably find my email address somewhere. And um, uh, I'd love to keep you posted, Gregory, on, on our development and our first webinar. Yeah, yeah. 
Splendid. Well, I will, um, I'll be sending out a link to this podcast and we'll um, try to include a couple of the resources in the notes. Um, I haven't been great at that as a podcaster, but um, I think there's, there's sort of so many layers of this that it'll be sort of essential to have for, for listeners to have um, some of those materials at hand. And um, yeah, I'm super grateful for your time, Dalton, and um, looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Gregory, for a great um, opportunity to talk and uh, going deep into this topic. We actually went a lot deeper than I anticipated. Uh, when we present the living systems economy, uh, we won't go into so much detail. We'll, we'll focus mainly on the biophysical model and the thermodynamics uh, at a high level. So, so that should be a bit more fun and a bit more f free-flowing because we'll talk about biology and mm -hmm. systems. Yeah, great. Okay, cool. Well, I'll look forward to that. And um, we'll definitely um, retweet and share and um, on all the socials when that opportunity to learn a little bit more on the high level about the living systems economy framework comes out. Awesome. Thanks, Gwen. Yeah.